120,000 families in our nation described as troubled. There are 1.4 million children that receive free school meals that aren't glad that the school holidays are starting this week. You know why? And acorns is going to grow and grow and grow, by the way. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be incredible. There are 400,000, 400,000 pupils excluded from school every year on behavioral issues. There are 5 million people in our nation, elderly people, that count the TV as their greatest companion. Our personal debt in this nation is 1.424 trillion pounds. That's 12 noughts, not six. And God wants to do something. So here's a man that just had a vision. An elder of a local church, by the way, so not apart from the church, but loving the church. And they've got now 31 blueprint projects that they've rolled out to churches that work. Rather than everybody reinventing the wheel, you can go to them. They've now engaged with 3,150 churches in the UK that has drawn in 49,000 volunteers in the church that's meeting 690,000 people every week in our nation. I'll tell you what, friends, if the church went on strike tomorrow, there'd be mayhem. There'd be absolute mayhem. <clears throat> and I love that verse, which is one of my favorite verses in the whole of the New Testament, about the many varied colors of God's wisdom being displayed to the principalities and powers through the church. Ephesians 3, 9 to 10. And I believe increasingly that God is causing people that have a civic responsibility, but seemingly no answers, to come to the many varied colored wisdom of the church. Matt also said that there's one in five councils in our nation now that <clears throat> contract with churches to produce community services. Brilliant. He was sat with the chief executive of a large metropolitan council just recently with a group of Christian leaders. And the Christian leader said to the chief executive, you know, we're going to pour in, we're going to do whatever it takes, but please don't ask us to take Jesus out of this because we're doing it in Jesus' name. And the chief executive says, you can do it in whatever name you like because we need the answers that you guys are carrying. And I just say all that because God's doing something, friends, but it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us. I was talking at the Inspire conference the other week with some of our young leaders, 80 of our new probationary leaders, talking about mission. And mission is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's never let's do Jerusalem and then we'll think about the ends of the earth. It's all of those things, all of the time. The little in word at the moment is glocal. It, it covers everything. It's going to cost us. And I said to the guys there, I said, sometimes we think we're big about giving 10%. We're about living on 10%. And if you don't believe me, then go to YouTube of Holy Trinity Conference, not 2013, but 2012, and see Nicky Gumbel's interview with Rick Warren. Please don't turn off because I've mentioned his name. Think, well, I don't like church's way. I'm talking about the man. And by the way, if you follow him on Twitter, it's heartbreaking as he navigates the bereavement of his son, Matthew. But the reality is that last year, Rick Warren lived, gave away 91% of his income. It started with 10% when he first went in ministry. He said, well, it's all right for him because he wrote that book that was in the New York bestsellers. Well, let me tell you about that book and the proceeds of it, Purpose Driven Life. He didn't take a penny out of it. He gave all the proceeds away. In fact, he worked out how much the church had paid him in 25 years of ministry and paid them back. And somebody said to him once, well, why did you have the grace to write the Purpose Driven Life? He says, because God knew what I'd do with the proceeds. And this pastor said, well, I'd have done the same. To which Rick Warren says, no, you wouldn't. 
See, because God sees the heart, friends, always after the heart. You may say, well, he's probably sort of loaded, but the reality is he's lived in the same house for over 20 years and drives a 12-year-old vehicle. But Saddleback Church, friends, is bringing community transformation, not only the doorstep of his house, but to Rwanda and some of the great African nations, because he's realized it's going to cost him. It's going to cost him. I say all that because God's doing an amazing thing in people's hearts in Arena Church. It's going to cost us. It's going to be inconvenient to get involved in mission. It's going to stretch us. When you've done a full day's work, then you've got to go down there and do something. But God says that if we'll continue to give to him, he'll bless us amazingly. And he'll make out of what little we seem to have to be absolutely incredible for his praise and for his glory. I say all that to champion all that we're doing, to cheer us on, to tell you afresh that I love the church of Jesus Christ. God loves it. To tell you that it's making an incredible difference in our nation and the nations. And for you to bring your little part to it and be part of it in Jesus' name. And to realize that momentum is gathering. Someone said recently to Matt Bird, as a minister, we are living in a season of unprecedented opportunity in our nation. I know there's lots of things we can look at that seem dark and black and against us. I know sometimes we seem the minority. I know sometimes people want to squeeze us into a mold. But we're living in an amazing day. The kingdom of God's being poured out. And if ever you get discouraged, if ever you get down, if ever you feel frustrated, I want you to keep going. Christian wants you to keep going. And believe that that little that we bring, friends, will be amazing for his glory and for his praise. Now, I'm not saying you'll go crazy tomorrow and stop paying your mortgages because that bloke at the front told us that we've got to live on 10% rather than give 10%. But you hear what I'm saying? You hear what I'm saying? And by the way, I'm not there yet. I'm nowhere near it. But I don't want to just stop at 10% and think I've done my thing. I want it to cost me. So that the world can be reached for Jesus' sake. We're talking about singing this morning. And uh, I want to read a verse or two in a moment from Ephesians chapter 5. Just felt, I said to Christian, just felt this theme on my heart for a couple of weeks. And next week we're starting a new summer series here in the morning called Stories That Live. And what's happening is there'll be a number of contributory speakers that will sort of give a snapshot of something in their life and then bring a a biblical principle to it. We're going to run that over the next six weeks, what we call the main six-week holiday. We understand there's twin and fro and there's people being away. We get all of that. We understand all of those things. But as Julie alluded to and signposted in in the notices, we really do want to continually be intentional about all that God's doing. I told you about the friend of mine that closed his church down for six weeks once, didn't I? And when he got back in September, I says, what was that like? He says, never again. Oh, he says, we're like starting from scratch. He says, well, you did it, you know. And the fact is, we need to keep momentum. We need to keep on with what God's doing. We're believing, friends, over these next six weeks, people are going to get saved. People are going to be healed. Backsliders are going to be restored. We're believing that God's going to do something in this season. And I know that you'll enjoy that. Different people coming to speak and minister and share their heart. It's going to be great. But Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19 says these words. Let me just read the the previous verse. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we talked last week about singing. I just want to follow it up with one or two expressions of singing from this particular passage this morning 
If you read Ephesians 5, you'll find there's a context. It begins in verse 1, where it tells us to follow God's example. Literally means mimic me. Mimic me. Now, people mimic all sorts of things, don't they? There's kids on tennis courts over the last two or three weeks. Yeah, I'd like to be the Wimbledon champion as well. Mimicking our great British hero, Andy Murray. Of course, he'd have been Scottish if he'd have lost, but, you know, but... but, but uh, <coughs> But, uh, and of course, p- people mimic wrong things as well. I hope kids aren't going to bite anybody this new football season, you know, because we sort of move on from sort of a bad example. And, uh, but the reality is, God says, I want you to, to ape me. I want you to go on a journey. You say, well, that's a big standard, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lifetime's journey. None of us are there yet. But for us to go to a journey where we'll be more and more like God. People may not read the Bible, but they'll read you. What are they reading? What are they discerning? What are they, what's washing over them? There's a call to be like God. And in that passage, there are three expressions of the character of God. Firstly, love. God is love. So it tells us to live lovingly. Secondly, to live in light. God is light. Not to live in shadows. Not to live in dark corners. Not to have rooms of your life that are closed to the Lord. But to be transparent. To be integrous. To be just full of light. And then it talks us to live wisely. God is all wise. And there in verse 15, it says, be careful how you live then, not as unwise as wise. Nothing to do with being old like me. 17, 18, 19-year-olds, 7, 8, 9-year-olds can live wisely. It's doing the ways of God. That's what it means. To live wisely. And it talks there, there's a list about redeeming time, making the most of every opportunity. Being careful how we live. Being filled with the Spirit. And then we come to this living wisely that expresses itself in singing. Speaking to yourselves with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Colossians backs it on, verse 16. Teach and admonish through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. We reminded ourselves last week that almost every time we come together as corporate church, particularly Sunday corporate church, you know, this doesn't just define us, but it's so important. We normally almost invariably bring a song to God. Christian reminded us in worship, must never forget that it is about us, but it's always about him. And the song is to the Lord, the praise is to God, the worship is to, 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 to Jesus. The Lord in whoever uh, is to the one that's high above all. And we remind ourselves last week that there are hundreds of references to singing in the Bible and at least 40 direct commands to sing. We also told ourselves that, you know, your singing competency may be lacking. It's called tone deaf. But the reality is, friends, that we can still sing to the Lord. We can, we can bring something to God. God knows about it. And that's why it works together. It may not work on our own, but it works together. We reminded ourselves last week that singing reflects reality. Reality always sings. Still, singing reflects harmony. Singing shows victory. He's called us from mourning to dancing. And singing brings liberty. He's opened the prison gates so that we might praise his name. I love it when people come to Jesus, come to church and think, well, I'm not sure what that was about, but light comes to them. The love of Jesus washes over them. I love it when I can look out over a worship context such as Arena Church where people are bringing a song to God, where they're lifting holy hands, where they've come to a sense of connecting with the living God, knowing that they've been forgiven and washed and cleansed. It's the most natural thing in the world because we're created for song. And to worship our maker. Just before I come back to those verses in Ephesians. I want to remind you that song has always found expression all over the Bible. 
In the Old Testament, song was very, very important. And I want to emphasize this because song will always be contested for. I mean real singing. I'm not about going through the motions, which I'll come to again a little later. I'm on about real singing because there's a spiritual dimension to singing that the enemy hates. And a song in the church will always be contested for. And we must push back on it, friends, with all of our might. You reduce the song of God in this church to nothing, I tell you, the impact will be dreadful on everything else that we try and do. It really will. So, there were songs of expression to God. When when God delivered the people of Israel from, from the Egyptians in the Red Sea, one of the first things they did was bring a song of deliverance to the Lord. And do you know that in the history of God's chosen people of that time, that they, they, they often backslid, they often were faithless. And the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the law of God, was a very, very tangible expression of God's presence. God dealt in the Old Testament with things, tangible things, which have become more spiritual in the New Testament through the power of the cross. So we don't go chasing a box anymore called the Ark, but we do chase his presence, which is still vital. And the presence of God had been taken away from the people. The ark had been taken. It had been robbed from them. And they were conscious that they were out without the presence of God at the center of vibrant national worship. And then David came to the throne. And the first thing that David did was to bring the ark back to the center of worship. He made some mistakes on that, some catastrophic mistakes, but they got it back there. To a place where the Lord, Jehovah God, was worshipped and praised and lauded and honoured. Initially, the only thing that they could find to put the ark in was a tent. It was called the Tabernacle of David. And there was praising and dancing and rejoicing. And then David says, I've, uh, sorry, God said to David, I've got it on my heart that, so that there's going to be a great temple built. You're not going to build it, but I want you to set everything up for your son Solomon to build it. And so that process took place. If you're reading Chronicles, you'll find, friends, that it was amazing how important song was, both initially in the tent, but then also in the temple. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And again, we understand in in a New Testament context, a New Covenant context, that the place now is not of importance. We had kickback when we moved to the banqueting suite of Field Mill football, uh, Mansfield Town football ground because some people said it's not a proper church. Well, what is? What is? Because church is not defined by a place. We thank God for this beautiful building which we call church and we're very happy to. But church is not defined by the building. It's defined by the people that meet in the building. Always has, always will be. So the place became not a place literally to go to but a place where we engage with God by his spirit from our hearts. But the principle holds true. And so as this temple was erected, temple musicians were appointed. And 4,000 people were chosen to lead instruments in praise to God. And out of those 4,000, 288 were specifically chosen that were skilled in song. You can read about it in Chronicles 6, 15, 23 and 25. It's all over. And also the Levites, the priestly tribe, but brought their addition to this And in Chronicles 16.4, it says that the Levites extolled and thanked and praised the Lord. Singing was important. It really was. And when the God of the Old Testament was reflected in a vibrant expression of relationship with his people in covenant, guess what? 
they had no problem in singing the praises of the Lord. When they were implementing his word, when they were living the right way, when they were honoring his presence, it was always reflected in song. And when they did the reverse of that, the song always suffered. So in Amos chapter 6, a prophetic book towards the end of the Old Testament, it begins in verse 1 by saying, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. And complacency, friends, is one of the great um, sort of trip-ups of the Western world. Where sometimes we can think we're so good, and yet we're so needy. We're so needy. And he goes down to verse 5, and he brings an accusatory finger to the musicians. And basically what was happening was, yeah, they were playing their instruments, but they become complacent in their song to God. And they were doing it coldly and inappropriately, without any passion to God. And the prophetic word come to stir people again. Why do some services, friends, in some church contexts seem so cold today? Because often they started in passion because people became complacent and they didn't protect the song. If you don't protect the song, the enemy will seek to destroy the song. Oh, yeah, we can be singing hymns, but there's no song. There's no reality of what's taking place. Please hear me. I'm not making a pot shot here, but if you watch songs of praise sometimes... Sometimes folks are singing, and sometimes folks are singing. You just feel it. Sometimes, friends, it's just something that they're doing, but sometimes through the medium of the television, there's no complacency. There's a passion to worship the living Lord. And those of you that particularly engage in worship and song, I'd encourage you to read Chronicles and to see the incredible expression and passion that God had for people to bring the worship to the Lord. It's amazing. So what about the New Testament? Well, the religious leaders of the early New Testament, the Pharisees, opposed singing. Ha! Surprise, surprise. See, my observation, friends, is that the religious spirit always opposes the song. It always does. When you want religion and not reality, you'll always rail against the song of God. Here's how it works. It's always too loud. It's always too loud. Why can't we do quiet? Well, I'll come to that in a moment, friends, but there's not a lot of encouragement in the Bible to do church quiet. There really isn't. There's plenty of encouragement to do it full of praise and full of song. Here is, we understand times of quiet and reflection, and we try to navigate those things, but we do it in the balance of the teaching of the Scriptures. And we must be aware, friends, of people that would seek to douse the song of God in the church. Because God's not called us to do quiet. He's called us to do song. He's called us to express our praise unto the Lord. Remember in the early New Testament, there was no printing press. There was no modern means of communication. So often the historical psalms and hymns would be reflected in people singing. It would train people in the ways of the Lord. In AD 50 to 100, there was a man called Egatius that wrote hymns. In, one, in, in AD 150 to 220, there was a man called Clement of Alexandra. There was a man that penned hymns. There was, in historical accounts, a Roman observer of the early persecuted church who recorded this. Before sunrise on a Sunday morning, they, the persecuted Christians, sang hymns to Christ their God. Fourth century Chrysostom was quoted as saying that the church was singing sacred hymns and spiritual songs unto the Lord. And the church of Jesus Christ went through a dark period called Dark Ages, around about a thousand years. 
There was always a remnant, friends. There was always a remnant that was filled with the Spirit. There was always a remnant that honored God in amazing ways. You can read even of people there speaking in other tongues. But it was a, it was a lull in the history of the church. And God raised up a German priest called Martin Luther saying, you know, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to get people back to what it's really all about. It's not about religion and penance and kissing steps. It's about being justified by faith. The last thing lost was the first thing restored. But during that time, friends, there was little song in the church. There was little victory. There was little release. There was little liberty. But since that time, God has restored a song. Interestingly, through Luther, who was a writer of many, many hymns. And I'll come to that again in a moment. But I want just to run through these three things that we read about in Ephesians very, very quickly this morning. Because it says to us in, in expressing the wise ways of the Lord that we're to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, spiritual songs in some translations. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So what about psalms? Well, psalms were written with the primary intention of being sung. There are certain church communities around the world that will only sing psalms, psalmic praise, and they'll sing it in particular ways that reflect perhaps some of the ancient customs. Don't think it'd do for Arena Church somehow. But the Psalms reflect a whole range of human emotion and experience in relationship with our walk with the Lord. And Psalms lift our spirit. Psalms confess victory. Psalms, Psalms join us together in community. And Psalms always reflect praise. And you don't have to read the Psalms very often, 1 to 150, to realize that praise is a reoccurring word. The definition of praise, songs of praise bring adoration, praise and exaltation unto God. They bring a sense of recognizing who God is and commending the works that he's done. And this is not a message on praise, but just let me remind you of a few things to do with praise. Praise is vocal. I'm going to do a series sometimes on verses that people think are in the Bible. Here's one of them, that you can praise God in your heart. It's not found anywhere, friends. It really isn't. It really isn't. Because praise is always vocal. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews 13, the very opposite. It says that praise is the fruit of our lips. And let's forget God for a minute, but imagine that you're a husband like me, and you never, ever say thank you to your wife, ever. Well, I'm saying it in my heart, you know. It won't do much for the relationship if you never say thank you for that lovely meal, if you never say thank you for some thoughtful kindness. You praise. Thank you, I appreciate that. It's the same with God. It's the same with God. We just vocalize, friends, our praise to God. The sacrifice of our praise, that can be taken in two ways. The sacrifice meaning our priestly privilege, but also the sacrifice when you don't feel like it. And Christian alludes to it on a number of occasions. He's very good at lifting people. Did it again this morning in that time of prayer. Very good at lifting people because we understand that people have had to navigate all sorts of things from last Sunday. The bumps and humps of life. All sorts of situations. We realize that. We realize as things come through on the email as we talk to people. The challenges of ministry. The challenges of family. I mean, parents, some of you got kids for the next six weeks. Hey! That's really going to do your equilibrium good, you know. In this weather. <clears throat> we get it. But here's the truth. Here's the privilege, friends, that sometimes when we don't feel like it, we're going to praise God anyway because he is greater. Let me let you into a secret. 
There may be even the occasional Sunday where Christian or me don't feel like praising the Lord. Can you believe that? But we're going to praise him anyway. It's vocal. Praise is musical. It's expressed in music. There are certain church communities around the earth today, very, very few, that don't believe in any musical instruments. They just pitch it off. Well, I, I like a cappella, but not all the time. You know. Praise is joyful. Praise is voluble. Psalm 100 says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. It involves sound, friends. It involves sound. Praise is excitable. Psalm 150 talks about dancing before the Lord. It's not a new thing. Not a new thing. <laughs> and praise is spiritual because Psalm 149 talks about binding. And it's not talking about literal expressions there of what it writes about in Psalm 149. It's saying that when we praise God, we have a spiritual impact upon the powers of darkness for the glory of praise and the honor of his name. And I want to tell you whether you're 15, 16, 18, 70, whatever, wherever you are, whether you've been a Christian a few weeks or, a, or a f- many, many years, praise will be contested for in your life. And if the enemy can get you to come to church week after week after week after week, and you fill a, fill a seat, but you don't pin praise, he loves it. Well, that's not going to cause me any problems. But when people start to engage with the praises of God, bring the psalmic praise to the Lord, something begins to happen. So we sing with psalms and hymns. Ah, but we don't sing hymns anymore, do we? Well, I'm not so sure if that is true. What is a hymn? Well, a hymn speaks of God's acts of grace and character and purpose, but also hymns challenges man's response to God. It's both vertical to the Lord, if he's there, he's everywhere, we know, but it's also horizontal. They often speak in challenge to us. And I understand that sometimes young, a younger generation can get a bit po-faced about the past. You know, if it's older than six months, let's move on. But I want to encourage you young people to realize that the privilege of worship today is built on an incredible hymnology. It really is. And it do some of you well sometimes to read some of those great old hymns. Do we want to sing all of them nowadays? No, we might want to sing some of them. But the reality is that the moves of God that have come across the history of the earth have been reflected in hymnology. The great Methodist move under, under the Wesleys is still today enshrined in the Methodist hymnal. Assemblies of God that 90 years ago next year, 1924 in Aston, Birmingham, came together as a coalition of Pentecostal churches to protect the truth of the baptism of the Spirit, soon created what they called the redemption hymnal. It became making melody. It used to be red, and then it became blue. Now, I'm so old, I was brought up on the redemption hymnal and survived. All these fantastic songs that you're sort of singing nowadays that come from around the world, from some of the great worship centers of the earth. And you know, my memory was such that 332 was years I spent in vanity and pride. And 370 was, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. 376 was, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. And the burden of the Lord rolled away. And number eight was, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And 619 was, oh, happy day. You see? Because we used it all of the time, including at the youth meeting. At 17, 18 years of age, in our youth meeting, we had a great move of God. I can only describe it as, I won't call it, it was a great move of God. Out of that move of God in our youth meeting, that sort of more or less untouched Sunday church, God called me to the ministry. We used the hymn book primarily. We used the hymn book. 
This is not a call, friends, for us to go back to what we used to call a hymn sandwich. But it's to remind ourselves that we've got an incredible journey. Incredible journey. And of course, many hymns were written out to revivals and visitations and personal experiences that were deep and profound. H.G. Spafford wrote, It is well with my soul, having lost his family in a, in a, in a ship uh, disaster that saw his children drown. It is well with my soul. What about George Matheson? George Matheson was engaged to be married, a young man looking forward to all that lay ahead of him. And he was stricken down by a disease that meant he, was, he became totally blind. His, fi- his fiancée his counted the cost and says, George, I-, I can't face this. I'm calling off the engagement. The plans for marriage were stopped. And in his darkness, literally, emotionally, he wrote, Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. Amazing. Philip Bless, Horatius Bonner, F.J. Crosby, William Cowper, Francis Havergal, Ira Sankey, Charles Wesley, John Newton, Isaac Watts, yeah, Graham Kendrick, Stuart Townend, Matt Redman. God's kept giving hymn writers to the church, friends. It's amazing. Isaac Watts was born in 1674 and he was often criticized by church leaders that described his writings as Watts's whims. But in 1707, he wrote a hymn as he prepared the church for a breaking of bread service. And Charles Wesley said, I would, give it, I would have given up the privilege of writing all the hymns that I wrote for the blessing of writing this one. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. <clears throat> hymns. And the reality is we don't have hymns in the red hymnal anymore. But, you know, what is a hymn? Well, if it's got two or three verses, it's a hymn for me. I think we sing a lot of hymns. I really do. They've got a different tempo, a different style. They relate to a 21st century culture. I mean, how many arguments have we had in the church over the years about we're not singing hymns anymore? I remember one of my pastor friends once, it was because they, can you remember the old acetates? I mean, well, some of you aren't that old, you know what I mean? You know, you used to have a little lad standing, it was his first job in ministry, weren't it? And everybody used to tell him off when he got it wrong at the end. Get the box. I mean, if you've done what Christian did this morning, he's in the box trying to find the song. It's just on the screen now, like anything. But the reality is that I remember having an argument because they started to put the hymns on the acetate to save people having to hold a hymn book. And he had somebody rail against him, say that's not proper hymn singing. It's how we can get fixated with things, friends. You know, I said to Christian recently, I think of Colin and Hazel, that we're so privileged to have in our church. They won't mind me saying that they're well into their 80s. Our style of worship would be different to their tradition, their background, what they've led church in. But you know what? They've never said a word to Christian and me about it perhaps not being what they'd like because they try to bring a heart to what God's trying to do in these days. And I want to say to our older folks around the church, yeah, it is a bit loud sometimes. We understand that. But please capture the bigger picture. We're not trying to do it to push anybody away. We're always trying to do it to draw people to. And we appreciate your patience. And we thank you that you're saying that you can be part of a multi-generational church in arena rather than going somewhere else where they may be singing a hymn 
but they're not bringing a song. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Songs from the Spirit. So what are these? Well, they're sometimes described as the song of the Lord. And I think a church context like it is beautifully positioned to express on numbers of occasions the song of the Lord. If you've been to our prayer and intercession days, you'll know that it's very, very evident. And uh, where we've gone with Tuesdays in prayers was lined up by a Friday prayer meeting that we did for two or three years. We decided to do it at 10 o'clock. It was just a sort of a contesting for the night thing. You know, when everybody was busy out there, we were praying. And okay, the numbers never grew massively. I'm sure you'll agree, Christian, there was just a great liberty of spirit most times. We brought the song of the Lord, we worshipped. I think it set us up for where we're going in prayer and intercession. It brought a new journey of prayer to to Arena Church, a new dependency upon God, a new cry that says, God, without you, we can do nothing. The song of the Lord. The song of the Lord's unrehearsed. The song of the Lord is from the heart. The song of the Lord is spontaneous. The song of the Lord is impromptu. It doesn't mean chaos. It can be led. The song of the Lord is with the language of earth, but also with the language of the spirit. The song of the Lord can be corporate, but on occasions it can be individual. The song of the Lord brings praise to God, but occasionally it can bring prophecy to the people, which will always edify encourage and comfort. That's what the song of the Lord does. And I want to encourage his friends to bring our psalmic praise to the Lord, to realize that we perhaps sing more hymns than we realize, and to thank God for the history that positions us to where we can be today with the new song. And to be a church that is unashamed and unapologetic about bringing songs of the Spirit. Because they will express a spirit of victory. Bondage is broken, healing's flowing in Jesus' name. They will bring a spirit of revelation where people begin to see the bigness of God over their lives. Where people leave Arena Church on a Sunday and say, you know, I've never seen it like that before. That's revelation. Where you get positioned for the nowness of God's vision over your life. Where you realize there's a destiny far bigger than you could ever wish or imagine. Where you get out of bed with what I can only describe as a prophetic intentionality. So that when you get discouraged, when you get tired, when you get exhausted, when you feel there's not been the response that you were looking for, you're going to go again another day. Because God's brought you to this place for such a time as this. The song of the Lord brings us to a place of understanding that we're not just on this earth to coast by, but we're here for a purpose. An incredible, unique purpose over our lives. And the song of the Lord brings a spirit of overcoming. That whatever pushback we get, whatever discouragement, whatever civic leaders may say on occasions, whatever we may come across that seems a barrier, a hurdle, a wall, a giant, we can always press through. Because nothing will take from us the song that causes us to overcome. It can't be contrived. It's intuitive. It's inspirational. It comes out of a journey, and it gets richer and stronger and deeper the closer that we get to Jesus. And I believe, friends, that God wants increasingly to help us to come to a place where we'll bring psalm, we'll bring hymn, but we'll also bring songs of the Spirit consistently and vibrantly unto the Lord as he leads us and as he gives us expression. As I close, I'm so thankful to belong to a church that believes in a song. I'm so thankful to a church that's got musical instruments. We've not got 4,000, but we thank God for what we've got. 
I'm so thankful, friends, that every time we bring corporate song to the Lord, we, we recognize afresh and we respond to the eternal heart of God that people on this earth, fallen and lost, that have found Jesus as Savior, would come to a place of doing the most natural thing that we were created for, and that is to praise and to worship. And I want to encourage us here at Arena Church, Ilkeston, and of course, Arena Church Mansfield, doing a different series there, but the context and application is still the same, to be a determined community of believers that will absolutely commit to a song. Some of you are brilliant singers. Some of you are brilliant musicians. Some of you are very, very gifted in this area that can help some of us that are just, we're okay, just making a joyful noise, but please bear with us. We want to be part of the party. And I want to encourage his friends to rise again and realize that this is not just something we do to start the meeting. To get everybody warmed up so that Christian can pray and whoever's preaching can preach. But it's part of the unique experience of our communion with the almighty living God. That presents himself on the earth in the person of Jesus. And has left the Holy Spirit in the earth to inspire our song until the work on earth is done. Let's never become complacent. Let's never compromise the song. But with psalms and hymns. And songs of the Spirit, let's sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. What happens to that sort of church? Well, heaven tunes in to the sound that is reflected from church on the earth. And when heaven touches earth, anything's possible. Let's pray.